running construction projects via WhatsApp in Africa is a is a trip, you know. But I'll tell you, I can get a lot more done faster in the Congo from San Antonio, Texas, than I can down the street. You know, you wire money over there. The next day, you see the dump truck or the bricks. You know, and then two days later, they're like, okay, here's the first wall. I'm like, it's really impressive. You know, people's hunger and their desire to work, and and sometimes people just need a little bit of investment. So you start off investing in real estate, but then invest in people. And that's that's got to be the best asset class to invest. And there's so many opportunities. Are you looking for opportunities to invest in passive real estate syndications? Join our exclusive community at Fastfire Capital, where we're dedicated to bringing doctors and other high-income earners priority access to the best opportunities to invest in large multifamily and other types of commercial properties. Not only that, by being part of the community, you'll get exclusive access to webinars and Q&As, where you'll be able to raise your passive investing IQ. To join our community, go to semiretiredmd.com forward slash syndication. Again, that address is semiretiredmd.com forward slash syndication. When you daydream about your future, I'll bet it doesn't include you still working into your 60s and 70s. But unless you're actively taking steps to break the cycle of trading time for money, that's the future most of us face. Ignite Your Journey will lay out a roadmap to show you how to finally break that cycle and achieve true financial freedom. And it'll show you how to do it in just three to five years rather than the 20 or so it takes for traditional investments or saving in your retirement accounts. For more information, go to semiretiredmd.com forward slash IYJ. Welcome to the Doctors Building Wealth Podcast, the place where we talk about the strategies, habits, and mindset that separate wealthy docs from those who are not. We're your hosts, Leiti and Kenji. Welcome to another episode of the Doctors Building Wealth podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of having Dr. Ian Thompson III joining us, and he's got such an incredible story of investing in real estate, going out and starting his own nonprofit, starting a locums company. So I'm really excited for you all to hear about his entrepreneurial journey. Welcome, Ian. Great. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. So Ian, can you tell everyone about a little bit about your background, but where you started investing in real estate? Because I want people to hear how early you started on. So I think I could trace it back to college and you probably are very cliche. I read this book called Rich Dad Poor Dad. And uh, my my college roommate at the time at Texas A&M, his dad was a financial planner and had given him this book and my roommate finished it. He said, hey, I think you'll like this. You should read this. And it just, it clicked. I had never read a book. I felt like that just really, anyway, I enjoyed it. And then I was like, real estate. And I was starting looking through all sorts of stuff, you know, looking at real estate at the time, but I knew nothing. I didn't have any money. I was just a college student. And then, so I took a year off before applying to medical school. Um, I guess people call that a gap year now. I had just decided to apply later and do some other stuff, um, including studying abroad. But I came back to San Antonio and I was working for this uh, Spurs as as a part-time marketing intern job. And one of the other young ladies I was working with got to talking with her and became friends with her. It turns out her dad was a real estate investor. And I didn't, I didn't know anybody, none of my dad's friends or parents' friends or circles had, you know, anything to do with real estate investing. And I said, Hey, you know, do you think your dad would um, let me sort of, it is the apprentice or intern or do anything like that? And she talked to him. She goes, Oh yeah, yeah. You know, 
here's his number, give him a call. So I called him and and I sort of interned from an apprentice firm for about six months during the rest of that year before I went to medical school, because I felt like I, you know, you read book, read books, but A, I didn't have any money and B, didn't feel like I had confidence enough to go do anything myself. And so um, while working for this, for this gentleman, I met another young guy who was in college at the time, and he had the same kind of goals as I did. And so it was during first semester of medical school that we, we were like, neither of us had any money, but we we figured, well, the two of us can get together. And and this is back when you'd find deals in the classified ads and newspapers. And uh, we found a house that we ended up buying for like $13,000 cash just east of downtown San Antonio. But we didn't have that money. My sister ran a landscape business. So kudos, you know, much uh, to her credit, she gave us a loan. And I literally walked out, I think, on my biochem final uh, first semester, last final for first semester of medical school and went to the closing. I'd never been to a closing. Made some mistakes, learned how to get a cashier's check and all that stuff. And uh, me and my sister in the parking lot of a bank, she gives me this wad of $13,000. She goes, here, this is the money you wanted. I said, great. So go in there and get a cashier's check, go to closing. And then we ended up with this, this real rehab project, flipping. And the flip that did not go right, you know, learned a lot of as they say, tuition and uh, mistakes, couldn't sell it, had contractors run off with money. I could just go into so many lessons just on that one project and then rented it for a while and then later was able to sell it. And if I just held on to that, that whole area where I bought that house for $13,000, you could get you know a handful of those at the time. You know, Those are $250,000, $300,000 houses these days. So that was my first foray into real estate myself and then took a little pause to focus on medicine for a while. So you've gone on to build quite a portfolio, and I know we're going to talk about that, but tell us how you didn't give up at this point and why you ended up going back into real estate, despite having had one legitimately you know, rough experience yourself. Yeah, I think it's it's really perspective and how you look at it. We When we ended up selling it, we made, I think we each probably cleared you know, $3,000 uh, for on top of everything we had done wrong and everything that had gone poorly. But I think when you just study it and you know the numbers, but you know, you get on, you know, the treadmill or the merry-go-round of medicine and, you know, busyness of school and then surgical, you know, surgical training, you really don't have much time, but I was still kind of looking at stuff at one point, it was like 2008 or 2009, I had a 10-unit apartment building under contract in Nashville, a stone's throw from Vanderbilt between Vanderbilt and downtown. And, and I knew it was going to be something good, but you know, after the financial crisis, you know, liquidity was in, and it's, it's a blessing to guys that I didn't end up doing it, but it would have been a great deal uh, long term. Um, I probably shouldn't have been, you know, spending that time on my day off looking for real estate, but I learned a lot in the process, got to know the owner, you know, learned some multifamily stuff, just hanging out with him. So there's learning process with that. But I got back to it because I always, I always thought that there was, there's value in, I know I, I invest much in the stock market. And I just, think that registered that I believe in like investing in stuff that I can kick the tires of, I can see, I can touch. And that that always resonated with me. Um, so it wasn't until really back when I was, I think, after fin- finishing my time in academics, I think that I ended up, there's a lot of story of being an academic, starting a private practice. And then, and then after that, got back into real estate. Once I had a little bit of, you know, made a little bit of capital that I could go, you know, as my wife would say, probably play with. Um, so. Well, what was that uh, next purchase? So in 2018 or so, so um, I purchased a 17-unit mobile home park. Mm-hmm. So at the time, 
at the time, the only real estate that we really had at that point was we were still, we were renting out our house from residency, you know, graduated from medical school, the top of the, you know, housing market graduated kind of at the bottom for residency and we're underwater in a mortgage. So we managed that house for about 10 years um, remotely before we sold it last year. Um, but in 2018, bought a 17-unit mobile home park. The reason I'd always been looking at mobile home parks since I was in college, um, after reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I was, you know, you would pick up those real estate flyers and magazines at the grocery store. I don't know if you ever looked through those, you know, and um, I found in the back this little, you know, uh, mobile home park for like $90,000. So I went and hung out with this lady. This was in Bryan College Station where Texas a and is and learned all the numbers. I came home one week and I said, like, hey, mom and dad, can we... I get a loan and invest in this mobile home park. I'm like, look at the cash flow and everything. They looked at me like I was crazy. They're like, we're paying this tuition. You should be studying. Don't be looking. Anyway, but it always that's kind of where I got you know clued in on the mobile homes. And so I had seen this mobile home park uh, uh, pop up, and um, yeah, bought the. It's just in a, a small town outside of outside of San Antonio, and it's nice because it's just it was just a lot. It's not owning the the homes themselves. Uh, with city sewer and water, which is one of the key things you want to look for is the utilities for mobile home parks. And that's kind of where it really started. That was in like the summer of 2018. And so and I guess that was my re-entry more so in the real estate investment. Now, now what I've heard all along the journey is you went and got a mentor every time to learn the concepts. Uh, tell yeah. us how you found these mentors and and how you approached them. Because I think sometimes people approach asking for something, but I'm guessing you probably approach them delivering value of some sort. Yeah. I mean, for that guy in when I was in right after college, um, I worked for free. I paid my gas. I ran around and helped oversee work crews. I had no idea what I was doing. I got sent out to collect rent in parts of town I'd never been to that I didn't even know. You learned a lot of like where people live, what people will live in. Um, I'd get sent out to fix stuff that here, go fix this refrigerator. I'm like the last person that should be going out to try to go fix the door of a refrigerator or something like that. And then I think Something that you've, I think I've heard y'all talk about is that if you just talk about like what you're into, what you do in real estate, people will talk as well. And you discover, not that you're, I'm so, not to like brag or anything, but you just talk about what you're doing. And then you will find people that are doing stuff in that area and say, and just get pearls of wisdom from them. Honestly, my clinic is one of my biggest uh, classrooms ever. Uh, as a urologist, you take care of a lot of old, older people. And a, and a good chunk of them are, uh, and, and I love learning different aspects of different businesses from folks. And a lot of them are in real estate. Um, I've learned stuff from builders. I've had deals come out of my clinic before. I think you just have to put yourself out there and, and be willing to ask. But I think you're right. It's offering first to add value and work for other people for free. Unfortunately, these days, many people are very transactional. I'll do this if you do this. Um, but the greatest reward, not even in all business, not even just real estate is to say, hey, I'll take interest, I'll provide value, and then the money will come later. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something that my dad always said, just do good work. The money will work itself out later. So mm -hmm. what a phenomenal thing to teach a mm -hmm. kid. Hopefully people remember that. Um, so tell everyone where you are now with mobile home parks and RV parks. And maybe can you tell us some of the upsides and downsides that you see investing in this group of type of properties? Yeah. I mean, it depends. If you take a snapshot in time, if you were to ask me during the middle of the pandemic, was it, you know, I think it was a challenging time for many people in, in real in residential uh, real estate and rental properties. It was indeed for, for us, maybe not as bad as some places, but being able to weather a storm or people not paying rent for up to a year and can't really do anything about it. So I've since then, 
I'm up to have three mobile home parks, um, two RV parks, small apartment building, a handful of single family rentals, and uh, have another RV park under contract now. Um, so currently about 200, I think 43 units with another 33 um, under contract. One of those large uh, parks is is something I, I, I co-GP'd as a syndication because it was much bigger than I could take down myself. And so that's, but that was a great, you know, I think mindset lesson is to say, hey, this is something 10 times bigger you've ever done before. Instead of saying like, hey, I think the temptation is like, oh, I can't do that. Or, you know, mm-hmm. But it's really like how, and that's something I try to tell my kids, it's not can't, but how, um, how can you do this? You just sit down and think about things, you know, that's the beauty of real estate, I feel like, is that there's so many ways to be creative about things and partnering with folks. And there's always somebody smarter than you. So you can always, you can always reach out and ask. And, and you, you could probably test this as well. Many people in the space, they're always love to talk about this stuff and give their wisdom. And like I tell other folks, if, if I can, if I can save you any sleep, tears, headaches, whatever, I will, I will, I will share with you because I made plenty of mistakes along the way. Looking forward to the next, uh, few years do you still like mobile home parks and rv parks as an investment i do i mean when you look at affordable housing i think there's there's some mission to it as well i mean as you can see across the country uh, affordable housing is a is a huge issue unfortunately mobile home parks are not and a lot of municipalities are not well liked if you will for various reasons you know warren buffett talks about investing in in, in business with where you can have a nice moat around them mobile home parks are one of those Versus like if you look at storage uh, as an asset class, there's really few limitations on permitting and stuff to get another storage unit built up down the road that can then undercut by 10% and move. I mean, that that barrier to entry is much lower. Mobile home parks getting a new, there are very few new mobile home parks that are getting built in the United States. So, and you have to get special zoning and designation to be able to build those. Um, so, and unfortunately, there are probably even a fewer number of them as people look for high move towards you know highest and best use of land and redeveloping. Um, so you'll see that as a lot of issues hitting the papers is oh the, these families are having to move because in their homes and so forth. so it's I think it's good. I think there needs to be more because if you look at the cost of building as regulation for permitting and new construction for homes, it's a pretty affordable way to live. I mean to uh, and to and to purchase uh, a home. As one of my, my patients once said, he he built thousands of homes, historic, home, you know, you know, had spent his life building homes, you know, stick built homes and brick homes and so forth. But he said, I cannot. He got into the mobile home business of essentially figured out how to affix them to land because you can't. They're chattel loans. It's different. You can't actually finance a mobile home itself. You have to specifically engineer in a way that's permanently attached to the ground to be able to get finance, like better financing on it. Actually, Warren Buffett writes in his company's right, most of the loans, and they have a huge uh, stake in the mobile home manufacturing and financing business. But once you get them permanently affixed and you can FHA, VA loan them, and then you get a 30-year AM on something, then you can, in a competitive interest rate, then it, uh, it changes your ability to price it. Um, so if you can get utilities to a piece of land and a mobile home on a permanently fixed piece of land, it's, it's a different kind of place. So you can get people into, and the, and the development, that's sort of the technology what the, uh, I guess, the bells and whistles they have in mobile homes now are pretty nice. So I, I think there's future there, but there's, it's super competitive. So my, I, I think it's become more competitive over the last five to 10 years and I'm no expert. So I listen to the people that talk about this on their, on you know, their mobile home park investing podcasts and stuff. And uh, to my understanding, they're like 40 plus 
billion dollar funds in the in the space. So they're just always trying to roll up in these parks. But they usually focus on those parks that have a hundred pads or more. So they talk about pads versus doors the way you know in, in multifamily. And then that sort of money is also now moving into the RV park space. And I think RVs are now the new, or at least the way I perceive it is more of the new affordable housing. Um, as I've gotten into it, just learning how many people live full-time in RVs, not just people that are moving around, but people like permanently, you know, in one park living there long-term. Mm-hmm. So can you talk to us a little bit about just buying the land versus owning the building itself in these mobile home parks? Like, what do you see the upsides, downsides, which you prefer and why? Yeah, um, it's an ongoing question. And it's like, the, um, there's a guy that runs a, a podcast about this and he asks this, all his you know operators and investors, the same thing. So I think ideal is that you just own the land in, in, a, in a municipality with cities through water, uh, all the things to kind of minimize your headaches. Because once you get off, you know, you know, well water, then you got to, you're you're almost like a public utility, that's sort of the liability of making sure that your the water's clean and all that stuff. Septics, there can be issues with septics and upkeep costs for that. So if you just own the land, there's really very little upkeep except for making sure the roads and, you know, it's things are clean and stuff like that. Once you own the homes, then it's becoming, it becomes more of, you know, the air conditioner went out, the plumbing, you know, that kind of stuff. And so when you own just the land, you are responsible for utilities like sewer and pipe and water that takes up to there, up to it. But once it gets in the home, you're not responsible. And I think for, we we have both. Um, so more of the headaches come from the, when you actually own the homes and, um, and you're either renting, you know, usually renting them out um, and that's um, people not taking care of it as well. And and the turnover and, and so on. they say that I think multifamily, the turnover rate is like 40, 45% per year in a mobile home park where the tenants own the home, the turnover rate, this is, these are national numbers is less than 5%. So you don't have that rent loss, if you will, from turnover and refreshing paint and all that other kind of stuff. You just, you know, just keeping the, it's just a lot of rent. So it's, it's more like of a storage kind of asset. Can you give us a high level overview of RV versus mobile home and like kind of the upsides, downsides of that? It depends on kind of how you do the RV. And I'm not an expert in this at all. I'm, you know, I kind of learn as I go and I'm kind of in the RV space, maybe 15, 16, 16, 17 months, something like that. You know, you have the RV parks with people that are more geared towards the the travelers that are coming in for three or four days. It's more of a resort type look. Mm-hmm. Um, if you'll, and those are more... I think labor intensive because you have to have people that are there checking people in and out. They're manning a front desk. They have a shop where, you know, like a, a, a camp shop where you can buy different things and uh, um, almost like a convenience store. And there's so many different ways on the one side, but you can also grow ancillary revenue around that from renting golf carts, d- different things, you know. And then you have RV parks where they're more geared towards uh, long term tenants where they're going to be there for several months. You know, at, at a minimum, a couple of weeks or years, um, and those I think function more like a more like a mobile home park. I've seen those very similar in how you operate those, and from a management overhead standpoint. The then I've learned there's this whole cadre of folks that work in RV parks called work campers, and they have their own Facebook groups and magazines and stuff. and And you can hire work campers that come in and you give them a pad as part of their compensation with utility hookups and stuff included, and then. You know, depending on what their skill set is, they may, a lot of times you may have a couple that the wife will do the check-in kind of stuff and and the husband will do the grounds maintenance and stuff like that. And you may have a team of that. So um, it just depends on how you you uh, decide to operate it. 
Um, there's more potential, I think, revenue on the daily, like more when you have more daily rates. But you know, you can use technology, you can do dynamic pricing and all this stuff. All these things that I'm I'm still learning and I'm I'm, I'm out there. So uh, I probably have a different take on it in a year or two down the road as I hopefully get better at all this stuff. But I'm kind of getting educated as I go. It's long-term rentals versus short-term rentals, really, was what it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Right. You get the short-term rentals, the remote doesn't work, you know, the the headaches with that versus the long-term rental house, you may hear from them once a year or something like that. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this week's podcast is sponsored by our course, Zero to Freedom Through Cashflowing Rentals. Zero to Freedom Through Cashflowing Rentals is a 10-week online course focused on helping physicians and high-income earners go from knowing little to nothing about real estate investing to confidently buying the cashflowing rentals will allow them to achieve financial freedom and work in medicine or their day jobs on their own terms. Our course is only open to registration twice a year, so be sure to get on the waitlist at semiretiredmd.com and check out the course details on our course landing page. This episode is brought to you by Dan Peck of Movement Mortgage. If you're an experienced investor, you'll know just how important it is to have a lender who knows how to work with investors. We've been working with Dan and his team for over eight years now, and he's our go-to whenever we need a residential loan for our investment properties. Now, if you're new to investing, you might not know this, but your lender can sometimes be the difference between getting a great deal or completely missing out on it because your lender couldn't close the deal. Now, I did want to point out that Dan can help you not only with your investment properties, but also if you're looking to buy a primary residence or vacation home. So the next time you're looking for a residential lender, be sure to email Dan at srmd at movement.com to get a free consultation and also let him know that you're part of the Semi-Retired MD community to get an exclusive discount on your next loan. Now back to the episode. Now, I know you're involved in a number of other things uh, outside of real estate, but before we wrap up real estate, what are your goals with this? Uh, Where are you headed? Uh, What are you looking to do with your portfolio in the future? It's a good question. I don't know. Um, I just keep, uh, as my my wife says, I think she she says I have this disease. And she got, so I, I came home one day. I was like, "Hey, we got to create another LLC." What should I call it? She goes, "Investoritis," because this is your uh, investoritis <laughs> LLC. <laughs> so that was uh, it's true. I just like growing, I guess. And so um, I think at some point exiting. You know, we're doing the one thing thanks to y'all in your course that we took. What was that? I think about January of twenty one. Got the, you know, doing the, my wife helps me a lot in doing the real estate professional status. So that, that I learned really from, from y'all's course. And, and so I think at some point we transition more out of active management into more passive, maybe some more syndications at a larger scale. And then because once you get the scale, then you can sort of, you have enough income to be able to employ a team to be able to do that. I think it's getting that we're kind of in that, that don't, I don't know if it's a donut, but a spot where it really doesn't, where the pain is there. But it's not enough to really justify having a, you know, more. We probably should. So I don't know. We talk about it a lot. <laughs> well, we're we hire a little, you know, we have VA team kind of and uh-huh. and you know EA type team. But I imagine a lot of us in this community are going to have family offices someday, mm-hmm. <laughs> and maybe we're going to have combined family offices, right? One team, and they're going to work for you know five or ten of us because maybe our holdings are a little bit smaller than the traditional family office billion, multi billion, but. Uh, yeah. that's, that's where I see a lot of us going as family offices. So I imagine you'll be there at some point. <laughs> no, I, I agree. I mean, because you can start leveraging uh, to do to do big things. Because as you say, once you start, you kind of just scratch the surface. You see that, oh man, there's so many more opportunities out there as well. So, 
So tell us about your Locums company briefly, and then I really want to spend some time on your nonprofit. Okay. So I I did locum when I was in academics, I did locums to help subsidize my and pay for my tuition to business school after I and then I left my academic job at the end of 2015, essentially to take a CMO job for health system, which I did for about six years. But during that one of those locum stints, I kind of got if, jilted, if you will, a contract gone bad, went sideways, and in the process learned a little bit more about the business and and learned that for all this money that's being paid by hospitals that doctors I felt that are doing the lion's share of the work should be appropriately compensated. And so I'd had that thought for years and that was, and then uh, chewed on it. There's a long story trying to distill this into, into very short, but in 20, in the summer of 2019 launched, um, I figured just, you know, especially specific urology locums company. And the, in retrospect, it's not the best time to start a locums company six months before a global pandemic that just about killed us. I mean, and, uh, and it was, you know, it was tough for many, you know, because nobody's hiring, you know, when surge- surgeons were getting laid off and nobody's going to hire any extras to come in, but just fought through and been growing since. And there's a lot of big competition out there. And uh, I'm really proud of my team that we've built all remote workers and most are, you know, based out in, in Florida and committed to paying docs the best. Um, and I think we're living up to that based on the feedback that we get and modeling our rates for, for hospitals in a way that's better from a budgeting standpoint from them. But really at the end of the day, it's when you look at physician, there's a workforce, there's workforce issues, shortage issues. I mean, all specialties, but specifically urology is probably the most difficult to recruit these days in the country. Half, from a number standpoint, half of urologists are over 55 and a third are over 65 years of age. And if you look at 10,000 uh, folks joining the ranks of Medicare um, every day in this country and Medicare beneficiaries utilizing three times uh, the urology services than non, you know, those less than 65 years of age, there's a huge issue. And um, and it and that has real real life ramifications on patients um, throughout the country, especially the smaller, uh, more rural areas. Not even, you don't even have to be rural to feel the effects of lack of, of urology uh, human capital out there. So I'm really proud of what we've been able to do to staff hospitals that can't recruit urologists um, and provide care. Um, that otherwise would not be available. Um, and so we're growing. Um, again, you know, it's the um, school of life and, and business and startups. Uh, I learned way more doing, you know, about business doing it this way than you'll ever learn in any textbook or any business school degree or anything like that. So with these types of businesses, I'm uh, more curious. Uh, you 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 really have two two customers, right? You have to go find urologists and then you also have to find hospitals, right? So which has been harder to recruit or find, uh, or are they equally challenging or equally easy? Um, it's it's always kind of a chicken and egg kind of thing. Like you you have to have um, doctors that that want to work with you, and you have to have hospitals that you know line up. The sales cycle for a hospital, if, if you want to call it that, and getting through contracting and the, the legal department and all that stuff, it takes you know oftentimes months. And you know I've had to take up to well over a year or two to get, you know, from when initial conversations have, have started to when we've had a doc start working at places. Um, and doctors, the nice thing is that I think, you know, we're the only one that's run run by a urologist. You can have my cell phone number if you work working with us. And if you have issues, the rental car's not there. I've gotten a call at, you know, one o'clock in the morning. Hey, I got here. There's no rental car. Okay. We'll get it fixed and early on. And, and, or issues of how to, how to uh, manage a, a patient situation or 
or administrative issue at, at a place. That's kind of our value proposition, our, our, our differentiator versus a lot of the large companies. And then I can speak to the hospital side of things. If I've developed service lines from scratch at places that didn't have any urology, but those are the hospital side is definitely the, the harder part to get. Um, so I love how people can hear how how much entrepreneurship starts to kind of grow, right? A lot of people start with real estate, but real estate really is a stepping stone for a lot of people because you learn the ideas of increasing income, decreasing expenses, you understand the cash flow, you understand how to build a team, and then you can parlay it into all kinds of businesses. And we see that happen. And it's so cool to see you just running multiple businesses now and uh, and multiple teams, it sounds like. How are you managing all of this? And um, how are you kind of getting through the tough times mindset-wise? I pray a lot. Um, <laughs> that, that's big for me. I think... Um... And Jesus, I think, was quoted as saying, like, that there are two emotions of an entrepreneur. It's like, uh, it's like, what was the word of it? Just like um, pure terror and then exhilaration. I mean, uh, you know, it, there's only two ways, you know, so it's, uh, but it's, it's that just, just working hard. And, you know, there, there are many times as you can, whether you're just trying to get through your pulling down your first single, you know, long-term rental, a single family house or whatever. There's so many times when things will pop up and say like, oh, this is, you know, voice people you know your friends or, or whatever to say oh you shouldn't be doing this you should close this business down or whatever um it's just putting your head down and you know just grind i mean it's it's hard work and perseverance and that's what that's what makes the difference i think balance is difficult i don't think you ever get it right i mean you always feel a little bit if you feel a little balanced something's not right you got i always feel like you you'll be heavy in one thing and then kind of pull back there to put reallocate your resources somewhere else and i feel like that's kind of my rhythm of life. Yeah, constant adjustment. I think uh, Gary Keller in The One Thing, which is a really phenomenal yeah, he book. talks about that, right? He talks about like balance isn't real. It's just like a constant adjustment. And there are times where something in your life needs a little bit more from you and you adjust. And then other times you're giving more to something else. And and so everyone's aiming for balance, but it's it's not really that. It's it's actually you're always in balance, but you're, you're prioritizing and changing over time for what's important yeah. to you. Cool. Yeah. Really cool. Um, can you tell us about your nonprofit? Because I, 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 and I want you to talk about how you got to the point that you had financial freedom, and then how you had this realization that you wanted to do give give more. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm kind of it's it's not like a, it's not like my organization of sorts, but uh, it, it goes back to I had the uh, opportunity to travel to the, um, the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of Congo um, with my chairman. And Dr. Smith at Vanderbilt to work at a, a essentially a fistula hospital, helping repair fistulas, which has come as a, a result of trauma from war, you know, just really bad, bad things. And so I got to go over there twice and had a connection, made some connections there in, in the town of Bukavu. Kind of kept those connections for a while. Fast, that was in 2010, 2011. Fast forward to about four years ago or so. Long story short, got connected with a a congregation of Congolese refugees here in San Antonio that were in the process of receiving other refugees. And, you know, if you can imagine being settled by Catholic charities and stuff, we're essentially being put, you know, 10 folks in an apartment coming here in December with flip-flops and, and shorts and several friends of mine and, 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 from, and from my Sunday school class and church got together just like collecting furniture, clothes, and, you know, just helping, just trying to help, you know, folks that have, you know, that, that you know, could benefit from some help. Um, became friends with this this pastor and 
having you know breakfast with them on a regular basis, almost kind of like a business mentor and helping from a uh, from their from a church standpoint. And uh, long and short is one day we're at breakfast and he said, "Hey, he goes, how can we start a church in the Congo?" And I said, I kind of chuckled. I said, "Hey, Pastor John," I said, "We're trying to work on one here in San Antonio. We've been meeting for a while for this, and halfway around the world." I said, "Let's just pray about it." So, long story short, did some homework. And for about 250 bucks, I passed the hat in my Sunday school class one day. And I said, this is what it's going to cost to get us a permit from the government and rent us a place and start a church there. And about three years later, about six churches, uh, a couple schools, agricultural projects, a clinic, which when they said, can we start a clinic? And we hired three nurses that are working like 24-hour shifts. It, it's really more functioning like a ho- like what we would say is a hospital than a clinic. Like I thought we were going to be doing sore throats, that kind of stuff. No, they're delivering babies, you know, people of cholera getting IV, you know, they're hanging out there at this house that we rent and, you know, getting IV hydration and so forth. So, and there's so many different projects. So I think that um, I'm really interested in like social enterprise, you know, instead of just giving money, how do you develop uh, economically sustainable um, businesses in a market economy, um, the profits from which can go in and help meet social needs? So what we what we did is that when we built churches, we would use the the church building during the week for schools and places that weren't there weren't schools and uh, that they didn't have you know a lot of kids didn't have access to education. And then um, we bought some additional land a year or so ago, and and recently completed the all the completed all the construction for a full like elementary school building, which is really cool. We had to. Um, the, the uh, inspectors from the, I guess the inspectors from the uh, Department of Education for Congo that came out of Bukavu, they came down to the town where we're working in Kamanyola, the city, and inspected and we passed. I mean, they say we need some more books, so we're going to get some more books for the library there. And uh, and they say, and we got to build more toilets when we exceed too many uh, students. Uh, so we we got our, we have our things to work on as we grow. But it's just super exciting to see what a little bit of uh, a little bit of money, how far it can go, relatively speaking, in many places in the world. So not just thinking about what you can do in your backyard, but other places as well. And and when you work alongside your money um, in, the, in those ways. So uh, I could go on talking uh, so many cool stories that come out of that. But it's like, you know, you put together a good deal uh, and that's really fun. But like when you see this and, you, you know, my WhatsApp, I mean, running running construction projects via WhatsApp in Africa is a is a trip, you know. But I'll tell you, I can get a lot more done faster in the Congo from San Antonio, Texas, than I can, you know, down the street, you know, you wire money over there two days a day. The next day you see the dump truck of the bricks getting, uh, you know, and then two days later, they're like, okay, here's the first wall. I'm like, you know, it's, it's really impressive, you know, people's hunger and their desire to work. And, and sometimes people just need a little bit of investment. So you start off investing in real estate, but then invest in people. Uh, that's, that's gotta be the best asset class to invest. And there's so many opportunities. Mm. And when we were talking before we started recording, you were talking about how you set goals. And oftentimes, most of our goals when we first start out is, is for our families, right? But then eventually you get to the point that you have enough for your family and then you start to set bigger goals. And can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because I know a lot of people in our community are starting to get financial freedom. And then there's what you do after that. And you don't want to get lost in the middle. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it's important to start that sort of that thought process early on and finding your why, like, you know, there's the why's for your family, but the, the why for, you know, the, what's the purpose of your life? I mean, I don't mean to get, you know, deep, but those are really big questions that need to be considered. You don't want to put that off. Um, 
and uh, at, you know till too late and so i think that you know like you like you mentioned it's you know first thing you know take care of your family get hit those hit those uh, those goals there from a financial standpoint but at some point and that number is different for everybody that you realize it doesn't really matter what more it's not going to you know all the data show was it above $80,000 a year? You're not any happier, you know, something like that. So it's not going to buy you happiness. Then you're like, do I just leave this all to my kids? No, you'll ruin them if you just leave them too much because they you kill their drive to do anything. Um, so you got to do something. So I, I chew on this stuff a lot. It's, you know, to, 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 much, to, to whom much has been given, much is required. And like, how are you? And then also, when you think about one concept I learned from you all, I think on one of your, one of your podcasts, you're talking about the concept of return on equity. Um, in in maximizing, you know, just that equity, whether in a, in a property, making sure that the dollar is working for you, and you know, from a return standpoint. But then you can also start and, and take that same concept to what's what's that return on the equity, just in or that money or that capital, however you want to talk about it, for people around you, people in general, um, besides just yourself. And can you make that, you know, can you synergize so it's actually working for you, but also working um, and helping other folks as well. Um, and so, so it's really, it, it, that really evolves. And I think like having that, you know, higher purpose in life. And, and for me as a Christian, that's, you know, um, that's, that's just, it, it's really about serving God and serving other folks. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and you can spend the rest of your life, you know, just trying to fulfill those goals. And, and, and I think it, you will, you know, there, 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 it has its own reward there. So that's kind of what drives me. I think I'm always thinking about. Amazing. That's beautiful. So we always uh, ask uh, all of our guests two questions. Uh, the first one is, what is your definition of wealthy? Ooh, I think it's having enough financial or sufficient financial and time resources to work on the things you want to work on. And then at the same time, having those valuable things or those worthy things for you to work on it. So I think it's, it's, that, it's, 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 it's the time and financial resources to work on those, you know, on, on big things. So, yeah. And what I've heard, I just want to highlight what I heard you say now multiple times is growth and contribution, mm-hmm. growth and contribution, which is fulfillment leads to fulfillment. And mm-hmm. you can hear you echo. If you listen to this podcast, you can hear you echo, echo those two things over and over again, growth and contribution. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. Awesome. And what is one mindset, habit, or strategy that separates someone who is wealthy versus someone who is not? Action. I think I'll take two. So if you get to me the liberty, <laughs> action. And I think you have heard you say taking massive action, just taking action. And then perseverance. Um, because, um, and I think I heard Steve Jobs say like 50%, uh, up to 50% of the difference between successful and non-successful entrepreneurs is just perseverance. So you just have to be willing to work and take action, mm-hmm. um, even when the doubts the doubts come up. So amazing. Yeah. So can you tell everyone who's interested in learning more about the nonprofit you're involved with and your businesses where they can find more of you? Yeah. Um, so, the, so the website for our business is urologylocums.com. Um, that's just our website. And if you want to, I don't have, I'm working on it. So I'm trying to make it actually scalable to where I can actually do more. It's one of my I'm kind of, I need to readjust and put some more in this, in this bucket for, for Congo. Actually, I spent this morning at a retreat for another organization called Here's Life Africa, which is really cool and looking and collaborating with them in the Congo. But if you, my email address is Ian, I-A-N at urologylocums.com. Um, and if you want to email me, uh, I'd love to make a connection and, and talk to folks. So thank you so much, Ian, for your time. We really appreciate it. Great. Thanks so much. Really enjoyed the opportunity. 
The Doctors Building Wealth podcast provides information only and does not provide any financial, legal, tax, medical, or psychological services or advice. You are responsible for your own financial, physical, mental, and emotional well-being, decisions, choices, actions, and results. You should contact a professional if you have any specific questions about your unique situation.